Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. In 1987, some first graders were promised a college education. This came from Oral Lee Brown, who saved a large portion of her modest income, sending 19 kids to college, helping others pass it on from the Foundation for a Better Life at values.com.
Hello, everyone. Welcome to America Meditating Radio. I'm your host, Sister Jenna. We're broadcasting from the beautiful Meditation Museum. And yes, we are approaching, and when I say we, the Brahma Kumaris uh, Centers in Washington, D.C., we're approaching 20 years of service. Can you believe it? Two museums, over 2,000 events, 17 city-wide and national to global projects, as well as millions of lives served. What was birthed from the meditation museums and the projects was America Meditating Radio, which is its own entity now on its own. And we're looking forward to having you join us wherever you might be. Think about coming into Washington, D.C. for the 4th of July weekend and join us at the MGM Grand Ballroom on Sunday, July 2nd from 3.30 p.m. to 6 p.m. on Awakening to Love and Forgiveness. We will have the award-winning journalist Roberta Baskin with us, um, clean comedy from Dan Nanan, award-winning songstress Kristen Hoffman, ballet performance by Abigail School and Francisco Classical Ballet and the Mudra Art Center. Yours truly, Sister Jenna, and the amazing Sister Shivani from India will be with us. We'll also, you know, share voices about you know the memory lane and just the incredible moments that I think are are touching and uh, were were transformative. And I think there are a lot of changes that have occurred since. We've been here for 20 years, and we're actually now in an age of great personal and social change. Um, And I think many of you can agree. I don't know how many of you remember the women's movement in the 60s, where maybe, you know, it was focusing on dismantling inequality in the workplace, but it moved into so many more things. It moved into anti-discrimination laws that were taking place. It moved into the racial issues that were happening in the country, it transformed a lot of things. And I feel that for many of us, when something innately is touched, where either we feel it's political violation, a relationship violation, an ethical violation on our own selves, there's something that starts to get stirred up inside of the consciousness to move beyond and to move towards some sort of a collective cohesion. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been in a marriage or in a workplace or in a team or it just doesn't support some of the deepest beliefs that you have, but you do look for areas to see how you can integrate you know, left and right old and new, tall and short, rich and poor, is there a method? Is there some sort of a spiritual law that exists that can actually integrate and incorporate and unite all? And I believe it is a spiritual one. I think it's when you dive deep enough within your being and come to a place where you can access your spiritual capacity, your spiritual power, your spiritual truths, that something can emerge within you that wakes you up at a higher level. And then you can feel like you're moving forward. I got an email last night from a video that I had posted. We were all having just fun time. We called it crashing a palace. (laughs) And the person's palace, quote unquote, that we crashed was extremely offended by that experience, which of course bothered me because I don't want to give sorrow to anyone. But then I I stepped back and I kept looking at what was it? Did we do anything wrong? Was my intentions at all looking at hurting anyone's feelings? And I had come to the foregone conclusion, absolutely not. We were playing. We were having a wonderful time. We were celebrating the artwork. We were celebrating the diversity of the community. And coming from where I am, 
in the U.S. And when I go to different parts in India, the poverty is very obvious. It might be a physical poverty. I would say India has spiritual wealth. And I would say that America is striving to get to a spiritual wealth. Um, and, you know, I, I apologized. I really apologized. And I had to find a way to apologize from a level that didn't go against what I felt. I didn't do anything wrong. But I remembered not wanting to defend myself. Like there wasn't a need for me to defend myself. So I think that when we wake up inside of our spirit, it's this incredible process of where you listen to the call of your spirit and you hear what the call is basically ushering you to feel or to become. And it's amidst all the chaos of what's happening outside of you. And you're turning inwards and you're going upwards to God's energy. And I think that we are being called with all the changes that we're witnessing at this time in the world to go inwards, to have a conscious awakening, to have an elevated awareness of ourselves, and to see how we can agree to even disagree with respect between people. And I'm watching as this unfolds for me because for me what I'm learning is my own opportunity of awakening even a deeper level of consciousness because so much is happening in the world. And I remember Sister Gita, she was asking me today, Jen, what do you think you're learning from this situation? And I said, I think I'm learning that I have to remember that the times that we're in are very, very different. And people are responding to things very, very differently. And our interpretations of things are valid. But how do we bring interpretation to a level that we can all find some sort of an understanding and respect and common ground rather than to allow our egos and maybe some aspects of truth to be touched and to be maybe offended or hurt. And so I'm watching me going through this scene and saying to myself, I can't be attached to this scene, but what I want to do is to observe the scene and see what is it that I might be needing to develop and learn and, and, and to become more and to see what's actually going to come out of all of this for me. And what I mean by that is who's going to really be a voice of support? Who's going to speak neutrally and be very present knowing that Sister Jenna would never do something to hurt someone's feelings? Sister Jenna loves to have a sense of humor and she entertains and her form of spirituality is not one that wants to emanate such perfection that it makes others feel that they will never achieve it. So as I watch myself go through these different stages, I know I have to be attentive and I know I have to let go of expectations of what people think, but where am I inside and what is my conscious elevation? So sometimes we just have to move away appropriately. We have to kind of distance ourselves from certain situations that we might be going through and allow it to help us to maintain a perspective that we can know if we're coming from a place of care and a, and a place of worry. We just got a call that one of our friends, um, his relatives, just left the body from an overdose. And my response was, oh, I thought he had cleaned up his act, but about Eight minutes later, I returned to that scene and I said, I'm so sorry that he left like that because I had to self-check and self-monitor myself and raise my consciousness to see to what extent I could be more 
service to humanity. Stay tuned. We're going to have Stefan Swartz, and he's going to be talking to us about the eight laws of change and how you know we can be agents of personal and social transformation. And before I get Stefan on, I'd like us to do what we do best here, and that's to take a moment to turn inwards and take a deep breath and to honor your story and to honor what you feel you stand for with also the possibility that there might be room for change, room for growth, room for elevation, but to make sure that no event or voices of authority should silence what you believe is your truth that you feel. If you look back at your history, you have been inclusive, you have not been a very divisive person, you have tried to stand firm on the most purest of value systems that exist, and you hold that as your base and your foundation. Here's feeling safe from the Just a Minute Meditation CD. Take a deep breath. Feeling safe. Taking just a minute. Like a tortoise, I move into the safety of my inner world and experience a world free from distractions I feel secure, protected, knowing that I am true to myself. I experience my true value, independent of the influence of others. I now gently step back into my surroundings. Welcome back so you can feel safe in your surroundings and feel also your joy. Stefan Schwartz is a distinguished consulting faculty of Saybrook University and the research associate at the Laboratories for Fundamental Research. He's the columnist for the journal Explore and editor of the daily web publication SchwartzReport.net, in both of which he covers trends that are affecting the future. He also writes for the Huffington Post. And for 40 years, Stefan has been studying the nature of consciousness, particularly that aspect independent of space and time. He's a part of the small group that founded Modern Remote Viewing Research and is the principal researcher studying the use of remote viewing in archaeology. In addition to his experimental studies, Stefan has written numerous magazine articles for a number of publications, including Smithsonian, American History, The Washington Post, and New York Times. He has produced and written a number of television documentaries and authored several books, including his latest, The Eight Laws of Change, How to Be an Agent of Personal and Social Transformation. Today we welcome Stefan Schwartz. Hi, Stefan. Hi, how are you doing? You were fantastic, fantastic. I don't know if you were on the air earlier, but I was sharing about how important it is for us to be grounded in our own personal sense of truth and ethics that can somehow get close to matching uh, an inclusive law, a law of, of caring and sharing for a higher number. And I also mentioned that we're definitely in an age of huge changes, huge transformational shifts, and we're definitely... I think, being called to raising our consciousness. And I know 
that I know that we're being called to a deeper sense of spirituality. I'm looking forward to our conversation because your book about the eight laws of change, perhaps it talks a lot about the current times that we're in. And I'd love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about how you came up with the eight laws of change. Well, the eight laws of change came out of personal experience initially. Four times in my life I've been involved in changing history. In the 50s and 60s, the Civil Rights Movement, which let me, among other things, hear Martin Luther King give the I Have a Dream speech. And um, in the 70s, I was involved with the uh, transformation of the American military from an elitist conscription organization to an all-volunteer meritocracy. And then in the 80s, we, a small group of us, began what came to be known as citizen diplomacy to set up a back channel between the Soviet Union and the United States. And throughout all of that, the consciousness movement and its first cousin, the environmental movement. And along the, the way of being involved with that, I began to think about why do some social transitions succeed and others do not. And I started doing research about 20 years ago, looking at social transitions of all kinds, trying to figure out what the successful ones had in common, or if they had anything in common. And if so, what were the kind of underpinning principles which seemed to make the successful ones successful? And that produced um, insight into what became the eight laws. I didn't invent the eight laws. They simply, over and over, I looked at over... Over the course of those 20 years, I probably studied uh, about 200 social transitions dating from wow. about 1900 to about 2014, I guess, is when I quit. And it turned out that there were, in fact, consistent principles that all the successful ones had. Okay, and like they I'm also really, I, I can't wait for you to mention these consistent principles, and I can't wait for you to mention what was the underlying commonality that, that that you felt in it, because you and I witnessed in our time, in this particular, perhaps within the month or two or three, we witnessed the Women's March, we witnessed the March for Science, we witnessed quite a lot of changes where people are even heading out to town hall meetings now, they want their voices to be heard, we're witnessing our politics in the U.S., either surfacing stuff that they always were, or witnessing some issues of ethics that we are perplexed by of individuals who we put in office that seem to really not care about the voice of the people. And I don't remember what it was like in the 50s. I wasn't born then, but I was born in the 60s. But I want us to really have this really deep talk because did the political leaders in those days, did they really listen and did they make changes? Or are you seeing the same narrative back then and even now? I know there's a lot of questions, but I want us to be able to go back and forth because I think this is a huge, huge conversation. Well, I agree. I mean, obviously I wrote a book about it. Um, yeah. <laughs> we Today's period is not unique. It is, however, more extreme than other people's uh, than other periods of history um than some anyway it arises from a fear fugue there are four major meta trends that are going on in the world that almost never get discussed or uh, certainly not in the context of being 
fundamental plans for fundamental processes of change. The, the first is that for the first time in about 500 years, being born white will not confer privilege. The second is that uh, for the first time in about 3,000 years, being born male will not uh, bestow dominance. And the third is that for the first time in about 500 years, uh, Western American, Western European American cultural values will not define how the world is run. Mm. And the fourth one, because of the rise of China and India, and the uh, a fourth one is that just as nation states arose at the end of the 19th century, most people think of the countries of Europe, for instance, as very old. But in fact, most of them didn't begin until the end of the 19th century. Italy, Germany, Austria, Belgium. And the fourth one is is a transfer of power from the nation state to the corporate state, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly in the United States with the passage of the Supreme Court decision on Citizens United. We basically legalized bribery, (laughs) and, uh, and we can see the results. I mean, you know... So these four changes together are are driving people, uh, particularly, as you can see in the in the elect, uh, elderly, rural, religious, uh, low income white people, particularly older people, they're in a state of of fear crisis, and as a result of that, rational thought stops. Uh, they there is a neurophysiological result. Um, we have a little gland in our brain called the amygdala, about the size of an almond, and it evoke when it's evoked, it deals with fear or flight. Everybody knows the fear flight mm-hmm. reaction. Mm-hmm. And when your amygdala is overstimulated because of uh, you are in a fear crisis, it correlates very strongly with conservative religiosity research shows, and also conservative uh, politics because you're in a state of fear. And so what you want is some authoritative figure who will tell you, I'm going to make it all great again. And that's what's driving the elections, not only in the United States, but we saw it yesterday in the French election with Marie Le Pen. Uh, You can see it in Holland. It's all over the world because uh, it's, it's being caused largely by immigration, because people who feel that they had a certain position in their society or it ran according to certain cultural norms are suddenly confronted with people who don't know that, and um, and it produces fear. So what we need to do is to get out of the fear state, and the way you create that kind of social transformation is that you have to change yourself. And you have to change your sense of empowerment. Um, and what I discovered in these eight laws was there is no force on earth that is as powerful as the concerted attention, intention of a large group of people. Whenever you see a large group of people shift in consciousness, and we actually know from research how many people it takes, it takes about 10%. Whenever 10% of any cohort, whether it's a community or a church or a country, shifts in consciousness, then the entire country shifts. 
And you can see examples of this, for instance, in the shift from gay to LGBT. I mean, nobody ever passed a law about that. The president didn't go on television and say, from now on, instead of saying gay, we're going to say LGBT. And it's not just a change in terminology. It's also a change in how one conceives of gender and sexuality. And when that, when 10% of the population shifted, not because somebody told them to do it, but because they made a decision to do it, and you can track it in, in uh, do Google word search, then the whole culture changes. Well, you can see it in smoking, too. It's the same thing. When I was a, a boy, you went over to people's houses, and on everybody's coffee table there was an ashtray and a pack of cigarettes and one of those runts and lighters you played mm-hmm. with as a kid. And you never see that anymore, because mm-hmm. uh, not because anybody passed law said smoking's illegal, but because information came out that led individuals to say, "I don't want to do that." They yeah, changed you had in a choice, right? Yeah, so it, it's about how you make choice, and and the core of that led me to something called the quotidian choice, which is the fundamental process by which people who are supposedly powerless become very powerful. So now let's stop here just for a minute. So where would you say we are heading, firstly, as a nation, because we've seen the uprising of various sectors in America, and also what we're seeing around the world? Because it's funny, it's not just America anymore. Not only are we getting leaders that are very fundamental in their views because of the fear of losing something that was so comfortable, but also the fact that people are even standing up. I've seen marches in Russia, people in Venezuela finally standing up. There are folks in the streets in South Africa, you know, all Mm -hmm. over. Where would you say Mm -hmm. then all of this, when you look at it from your hindsight, what is it calling? What is it signaling to us at this time? Well, the great struggle that humanity is going through is can we create a society that is based on the fostering of wellness and well-being. You know, if you, I, I am personally, as a person, I don't really have much interest in, I mean, I follow it for sort of anthropological reasons, but I don't really care about political philosophies and theories and speculations and most of what right. passes for commentary. What I look at is social outcome. If you do this, what do you get? And what you right. see going on is that while there is an, there is one portion of the population, it's a great, it's, I call it the great schism trend, there's one portion of the population that's in a terrible fear state, and there is another part of the population, and that's where these movements that you're describing all come from, who are saying, no, 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 we can do better, we can be better, we are prepared to be better, we personally are making choices that support wellness, support gender equality, support racial equality, whatever the particular movement is about. What you see when you look at these successful transformation movements, they all have certain characteristics. One, they're nonviolent. And the reason for that is that nonviolent transitions can, uh, are successful about 75% of the time. As I say, I looked at about 200 of them over the course of more than a century, And what you see is that uh, social transformation movements that are um, nonviolent in nature, uh, most of the time, 75% of the time, they succeed, whereas violent changes 
although mm-hmm. they would appear to be more successful because they happen quicker usually, actually only succeed about 25% of the time. And even when they succeed, they don't last very long. Mm. I mean, if you think about it, um, National Socialism, the Nazis, only lasted for between 10, 20 years. And communism only lasted for 73 years, the lifetime of a single person. I mean, there are people alive who who um, remember before communism existed, and it's virtually disappeared now. And at the time that um, you and I were younger, uh, the Soviet Union seemed to be this great implacable monolith, that this huge superpower that seemed forever to be present in our lives in all kinds of ways, and in fact, it didn't last very long, because uh, violent change always produces a sense of exclusion and people who are offended and, and hurt and who become hateful about it, and whereas if you do uh, nonviolent change, this is what Gandhi understood, it's inclusionist, because it is basically wellness-centered, and people want to be involved and become involved, and more and more, uh, and uh, so it succeeds 75% of the time, and it tends to last. Mm -hmm. So what we're looking at in the Black Lives Matter, in the science movement, in the environmental movement, in the animal rights material, all of those things, in the gender equality material and movements, what we're seeing are expressions of people that are in search of producing wellness and are trying to design mm-hmm. and support things which which will produce produce well-being and if you look at the social outcome data you see that those countries those societies which support wellness and well-being from the individual to the family to the community to the nation to the planet itself um those that that foster this they produce better social outcomes i mean quite literally people live longer you know mm-hmm. uh, if you in the united states alone if you look at a woman in louisiana <clears throat> particularly if she's a woman of color her life expectancy is about 5 to 6 years less than a similar a woman who is in similar demographic living in Washington or uh, Maine or or Hawaii. And if you look at it across the countries, I mean, the, the, the difference in lifespan, for instance, between Japanese women and American women can be as much as 15 years. So mm. these things have huge consequences. Um, mm. If you look at, for instance, um, if you look at the red value states and the blue value states, you see that, um, infant mortality, maternal mortality, obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, incarceration, literacy, spousal abuse, child abuse. All of those things are worse in the societies that have the least commitment to wellness. Mm, so that's so true. In, yeah, I mean, you know, it's <clears throat> this is not... The difference is this is not speculation or philosophical debate. Uh, what I'm talking about is all grounded in the, in science and in the social outcome data. And the social outcome data, as I say, tells us that things which are productive and fostering of well-being are cheaper, 
more efficient, more effective, more productive, easier to implement, nicer to live under, and more enduring than things which uh, lack the component of wellness. And it usually means because they've put profit as the first priority, not wellness. So in the United States, for instance, go ahead. No, I I love where we're going with this because I think that hearing from your voice, it in many ways validates the path of spirituality that I've been on where there are just so many individuals that are very invested in their own transformation of removing from their consciousness that limited state of existing, you know, where you're only attached to your gender, your religion, your form, your name, your land, your country, your language, because it tends to create so much internal and external violence when we feel that we either bump into something that seems better than my gender, my name, or the interpretation of the marketing, that, you know, someone's gender is better, someone's race is better, someone's religion is better. And it's moving us into, well, let's see if we can have a beautiful, sweet race of who can have the noblest and highest character, who can have the deepest sense of well-being, who can have a sense of um, dignity and divinity in the midst of adversity. And so uh, I want to go back to your book because I know that I'm taking a little bit off of that, but in the book, uh, tell our listeners what are some of the things they can look forward to because I think that will be an interesting um, kind of a teaser for people to go, oh, my gosh, I really want a copy of that book now. (laughs) Well, the key to the whole thing is the quotidian choice. Okay. And the quotidian is a word most people don't know, which is one of the reasons I picked it, because it would stand out in your mind. Quotidian just means mundane, ordinary, daily. But if I said daily choice, you never remember it. So quotidian choice. Anyway, every day we make dozens of little choices. What toothpaste we buy, what cat food we buy, uh, the gas we go, the gas station we go to, the breakfast cereal we buy. I mean, all of these things. These are every one of these little choices that most people don't even give any thought to. They don't even really realize they're making a choice. But actually, those those choices are votes in which you are voting for well-being or you are voting for profit. Mm-hmm. And so the quotidian choice says, every day, this is the pledge that I invite people to join. Uh, this is what I do, and, and now hundreds, thousands of other people do. And in fact, the, to really give you a sense of the power of this thing, the people who are listening to your program as we speak right now, however many of them there are, they have the power to change the world. It doesn't matter that they don't have armies or official positions or great wealth or any of that. That's not what matters, interestingly enough. It's what people Mm -hmm. think matters, but actually, as I said, the most powerful thing on earth is the concerted intention of a large group of people. And so Mm -hmm. every day you make these dozens and dozens of little choices which are really vote. So the first step is to become aware that you're doing that and that you're, you're making these little decisions. And then every time you're faced with one of these decisions, that of the options that are available to you, you choose the one that is the most life-affirming and compassionate and fostering of wellness, as you understand it at that moment. 
doesn't mm-hmm. matter how you'll understand it in six months. It's, you understand it in that moment. And it, and the, the other part that that uh, that makes a difference is that when you make this choice, you consistently choose the thing which is the most compassionate and life affirming. And as you do that collectively, and then you tell friends that you're doing it, that you have taken, you've made this commitment. I'm going to. Every day when I make all the little choices of my day, I'm going to always choose the one that is the most compassionate and life-affirming. And if you do that and you tell it to 10 people and you invite them to tell 10 people, well, if you start with 1,000 people, then the next time it's 10,000, then it's 100,000, then it's a million, then it's 10 million, then it's 100 million. So within six leaps, you've already gotten to have a third of the American population. And that's exactly mm. what Gandhi did. That's, you know, Gandhi is important for many reasons, but one is that he is the only person who figured out how to gain independence for his colonial country so that it could be free without a war. Mm. Just before he was assassinated, a uh, reporter asked him, uh, how did you get? How did you force the British to leave India? They were one of the most powerful nations on earth at that time, and and uh, they had ruled India for hundreds of years. And the Queen was considered the Empress of India. It was a big part of her title and the and the consciousness of the United Kingdom. How did you force them to leave? And Gandhi's answer is the answer. He said, "It's not what we did that mattered, although that mattered." It's not what we said that mattered, although that mattered. The key was the nature of our character, the beingness we had. That led the British to choose to leave India. Mm. So without an army and without official position, without any particular money, this one little lawyer who originally got started because when he was a barrister in South Africa, they... They wouldn't let him ride in the first-class train. He bought a first-class ticket, and because he was an Indian, he was a person of color, they made him ride in third class, and it made him furious. And so he decided that he was going to find a way in which people could be treated fairly. And he read uh, Thoreau's Civil Disobedience. So now here's Mm -hmm. another thing. You have a single individual in the 19th century sitting next to a little pond, Walden Pond, I've actually been there, and it's a little pond mm-hmm. who writes this thing that writes this extended essay, civil disobedience. Gandhi reads it. He says, "This is how I'm going to free India," and he does. Martin Luther King reads Gandhi and discovers that Gandhi read Thoreau, and he turn in turn reads it, and he uses the same techniques in the American civil rights movement. And so, what you have is one sort of eccentric writer sitting next to a little pond in in eastern northeastern United States writes an essay which changes the history of three countries India Great Britain and the United States so you never know you never know when you make those choices the effects that they may have and so when you take this quotidian pledge to make these choices, every day you always choose the compassionate, life-affirming option, and other people join you in that, well, that's how people stopped smoking. That's, that's how gender equality got started. All of these movements that we see 
the reason that you see them being successful is that they are based on compassion and being life-affirming. That's, you know, in Jesus' message, love God, love yourself, and in that is the whole of the law of the prophets. And you see the same thing in Buddha and, you know, all over the world because people who have deeply profound spiritual experiences see this idea of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all life. And out of that arose, when I began to look at all these social transformation movements, I realized that there were eight laws that the successful movements all followed. Mm. Uh, and I was particularly made made aware of this because of the Quakers and because of the abolitionists. I mean, you know, the Quakers are this tiny little group of people. They're less right. than 87,000 Quakers in the United States. We're a country of about 318 million people. Mm-hmm. There's only 87,000 of us are Quakers. And in the whole of American history, less than 500,000. And yet, if you look at every major social transformational movement in the United States, going back to the colonial period, abolition, women's suffrage, public education, penal reform, the environmental movement, the nuclear freeze, prison reform, you look at all these social movements that we think of as these big social leaps that make us a better society, they begin with a little tiny group of Quakers, because the Quakers... (laughs) <laughs> figured out these eight laws, and they use them. And mm-hmm. so even though you don't know a Quaker, most people have never met a Quaker, never going to meet I a Quaker. I do know Quakers. <laughs> well, you may. I mean, I'm not saying yeah. specifically, but most people have never met a Quaker. I mean, there are 318 million Americans and 87,000 of them, less than a, you know, it's about the size of a small city, a small town, are uh, are Quakers, and yet this tiny little group has had this wildly disproportionate effect. And the reason right. is that they understand these eight laws. Mm, beautiful. Now, I know that we have to come to a close to our riveting interview, no doubt, and I could just keep listening to you because you're speaking to the choir, but in a way that I think um, lay people and individuals who are a little bit unsettled can also understand. Now, Throughout your work, you tend to communicate a great sense of urgency. Can you yes. share what that's all about? Well, we have we are facing humanity is facing a self a self created disaster, climate change, and I don't think people really get how powerful climate change is going to be. Well, for one thing. Um, about 52% of the population lives within 200 miles of a seacoast or of a coastline and um, in er- largely in urban areas. And most of those metropolitan urban areas along the seacoast um, are going to be flooded. It's, you can already mm-hmm. see it starting. Yes, I mean, you look yes, at Florida, yes. for instance. You look at North Carolina. You look at at uh, Norfolk, Virginia Beach, uh, you look at Baltimore, Washington, Philadelphia, you look at San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, San Diego, every one of those cities is going to be severely impacted by sea rise, and it's already starting. I mean, this isn't something that's going to happen hundreds of years from now. This is going to start, it is already happening, and is beginning to impact cities even though we have a federal government that doesn't believe climate change exists with the current administration and they're doing everything possible 
to undermine environmental laws and are changing them as fast as they can to allow more profit to be made. The fact is, as a country, we're falling further and further behind, but the reality that is going to occur, that is occurring, is that climate change is really threatens civilization, and that's mm-hmm. why I have a tremendous sense of urgency. I mean, right. There are people who are listening to us today who will live into the period where the society that they grew up in and that they think of as being America uh, isn't going to exist right. because of these migrations. Uh, that One migration is away from the coast because of sea rise. The other is out of the southwest because of lack of water and because of increased temperature. And the third is out of the central states because of violent, extreme, recurring weather events. So we're going to have massive dislocations of people, which is going to have profound social implications. Which we have actually seen already. Yes, yes, we see all this. Oh, absolutely. I I published. I call them them rehearsals. I call them like little mini-rehearsals. We haven't even seen the big one yet. Yes, yes, and and so... Mm -hmm. You know, the difference between governance at the local level and governance at the federal level is that at the federal level, you can spend most of your time just bloviating, just talking. But a mayor who gets a call at 2 in the morning because of a flood says all the sewers are backed up and flooding everybody and the electricity is about to go out, he or she has got to actually govern. Mm -hmm. You have to do something. Mm -hmm. And what you see is that, for instance, in a state like North Carolina where at the state level, they won't even allow you to discuss climate change. They can't even use the word. But if you talk to the people on, for instance, North Carolina Outer, Outer Bank, or you talk to pe- uh, mayors of cities that are along the coastline, they are dealing with it, already dealing mm-hmm. with it. And they already see uh, that they are not going to be able to continue and probably are going to have to abandon large parts right. of their cities because of the no. sea rise. Or you go no. to, for instance, Lake Mead, and you Lake Mead, in, uh, you look at a uh, state like Nevada, it's running out of water. Right. And, and um, it's going to be impossible. There just isn't any more water. So it's not going to be possible to maintain cities of the size that you currently see in Nevada, A, because the temperature is going to go up. Uh, they're going to be... Uh, or a city like Phoenix, we have 150 days a year where the temperature will be 114 degrees or better. Well, I can tell you from travels in the Middle East and archaeological expeditions I've done, when it gets to 114, the Bedouins quit work and go back in their tent. <laughs> sure do. So we sure do. <laughs> so we're going to see in this in this temperature rise, it's and it's already happening again. I mean, this is not something that's lying century out it's not even lying decades out we're going to begin seeing the results of this are seeing the results of this and so i have a tremendous sense of urgency how do we create a society which deals with climate change and the the only way you can really do that by recognizing that all life is interconnected and interdependent and by making these choices that allow you these these daily life-affirming choices that you and everybody else make together, that and because we place value, the society's role is to produce well-being, that's mm-hmm. the only way we're going to get through this. The other alternative is authoritarianism 
and eventual disaster. I hear you. Ron, I think we need to definitely have a part two to our conversation because in one way I sense the urgency and in the other way I want us to perhaps in part two to talk about the cures, the preventative methods that we could use. You touched on a few, but I know that there's a lot more. That's why you wrote The Eight Laws of Change. So before I let you go, let our listeners know, and thank you so much for the richness of this conversation today. And I'm going to be making my quotidian choice as of now, which I think I live on a day-to-day basis, but it could always be refined, right? Leave us with a website or some information that our listeners can contact you, get more information about the eight laws of change, and please come back on the air so we can do a part two. I mean that. Okay. Well, Mm -hmm. you want to, the two main websites that you want to look at, my daily web publication, schwartzreport.net, www.schwartzreport.net. Schwartzreport.net. That'll give you. It's I give it. It's free. I don't charge anything for it. So that's the daily news report, and it covers trends. I don't do news. I don't do polemics. You know, I'm, it's not about political theorizing. I do trends that are shaping the future, and my personal website where you can also order the Eight Laws of Change is www.stephanaschwartz.com, and S-T-E-P-H-A-N-A-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z, stephanaschwartz.com. And Beautiful. You can also, and you can get my papers. I've, uh, you can go to, there's also a website, academia.edu, A-C-A-D-E-M-I-A.edu, where you can download at no cost all of my papers. But the key to this thing is the eight laws of change. That really was when I thought about what can I do, I thought, well, I can, I'm a researcher, so I can, I can do this book, which will help people feel, give them the tools to become empowered and give mm. them a sense of safety and that they are effective in their lives. Beautiful, beautiful. Stefan, thank you so much for uh, gifting us with the book and looking forward to having you back on the air. My pleasure. You have a great day. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. I've interviewed so many people over these past three and a half years, and that's one interview I just wanted to keep listening to. I think you you realized I didn't want to say anything. I just wanted to hear what Stefan had to tell us because I think that it was so mind-boggling but mind-altering and raising up. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation, but I cannot end the call without putting our beautiful Sister Gita on to read us one of her beautiful messages of the day. Sister Gita? Good day to you all, and we're all beautiful souls. We just need to get back to that point, and the quality that's needed is patience for that taken from a pocketbook of wisdom, there is a part of you that is perfect and pure. It is untouched by the less than perfect characteristics you have acquired by living in a less than perfect world. This part of you is a still and eternal star. Make time to reach it, and this will bring you untold benefit. Sweetness is a virtue that searches for the good in every person and situation. At its heart is a conviction that there is always something positive to be found. You simply have to have the patience 
to discover it. The run is not done in 10 minutes. Just be patient with your desire to change. Om Shanti. Have a great day. Thank you so much, Sister Gita. Always appreciate your sharing. Now, remember, no one, absolutely no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. And we are here to love each other the same. So let's do that. Here's Kristen Hoffman, The Rose. Take care, everybody. Hope to see you soon. Just begun